From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Dear Mother, To my dearest family, It's been a long time since my last letter. A salutation is a greeting, in particular, a formal greeting used in a letter. Dear Mother, Dear Father, Hey Mom, it's your son Chris. Salutations usually take the form, Dear X, Dear Emily, Or sometimes simply, X, Emily, Followed by either a colon or a comma. Hi there, this is John. How are y'all? I miss you all very deeply. Salutations in informal letters and in a comma. The comma. To my dearest family, I miss you all very deeply. Salutations in formal letters and with a colon. Two little dots. That's it. I love you, Mom, and thank you often. Right back, SAP. Love, Chris. There is nothing so exciting, so breathtaking, so viscerally pleasing as getting a letter. Admit it, even in this age of instant messages, blogs, chat rooms, cell phones, you still secretly hope that when you pick up your mail, that in between all the bills and catalogs, notices and solicitations, there will be, against all odds, a handwritten letter just for you. Mostly, it never happens. But when it does, how sweet. There's something about a letter that just beats all other forms of communication. Maybe it's because of the time and effort and dedication it represents. Maybe it's just the mystery of what could be inside. Today on ReSound, epistolary audio. All of the craft and composition of a handwritten letter, none of the paper cuts. Letters from Baghdad, from Chicago, to friends, to mom, and to people who will never answer. Stay with us. When the recipient of the letter is unknown, for example, in a letter of recommendation or when writing to a company, the salutations, dear sir or madam, or to whom it may concern, are used. So have you ever wanted to speak your mind so badly that you don't care one iota if so much as one person hears you? You could even go so far as to put pen to paper and send it off knowing, knowing that you don't stand a ghost of a chance of getting a response. Well, the public radio program Weekend America and the literary magazine McSweeney's have teamed up to air some of these letters, adding their own brand of imagination and wit in a series called, appropriately, Open Letters to People or Entities Who Are Unlikely to Respond. Here's a short example. An open letter to my local newspaper with advice for when it runs its next two-page photo spread on the beautiful colors of the season. Dear editors, print the photos in color. Sincerely, Frank Ferry. Here's another letter written by Amy O'Leary. It's called An Open Letter to My Spanish Host Family. Dear Spanish Host Family, In 1997, we sat around the table together in your middle-class apartment with the marble flooring. You overfed me with your omnipresent table bread. We drank yellow Fanta. When my Spanish was bad, we sang songs from The Little Mermaid in English. When my Spanish was good, we talked politics, and you asked me about the death penalty. I explained how Texas was básicamente un país distinto. You know, a completely different country. I can't remember your names. Dad, are you Juan? You let me make you scrambled eggs. You've never seen scrambled eggs before. So here's the deal. Americans are all the same, and I'm an American. We're enthusiastic at first, heartbreakingly sincere at times, but with a disappointing lack of follow-through that undercuts it all in the end. I would apologize for that if it was something I could do anything about, 
but I'm sorry. It's just the way we are. Jorge? Was that your name, Dad? Was it, was it Jorge? In my classes at the escuela, I learned that Spanish proverb, nunca es tarde si la dicha es bueno, which basically translates to, it's never too late if the words are kind. But I don't know if that's so true. Maybe it's just a Spanish thing? See, sometimes in America, it is too late. You've got to understand, over here we just let things go. I'm really sorry for using so much water in the shower. Sincerely, Amy O'Leary, Brooklyn, New York. Amy O'Leary, reading one of Weekend America and McSweeney's open letters to people or entities who are unlikely to respond. Once again, I love and miss you all dearly. It is going to be the most amazing reunion when I come home. Please tell everyone I say hello, and I miss them as well. I will write again soon. Sincerely, your daughter, Sally Jade. Australian Donna Mulhern has been in Baghdad during the Iraq War, both as a human shield and as volunteer doing humanitarian work with children on the street. She's kept in touch with her friends and family through regular emails describing what's been going on around her. Her story is called, You Know You're in Baghdad When. Wednesday, December 3. Razor wire, concrete barriers, power cuts, rumbling tanks, low-flying choppers. Welcome to Baghdad under occupation. Amongst the rubble, gunshots and stench, there are dabs of colour, spurts of life and pockets of hope. The resilient Iraqis, it seems, are refusing to have their spirits buckle. I've received many hellos, welcome, and even one or two, I love you. Although many Iraqis who believe the war never ended are continuing a military campaign, some are voicing their opinions in other ways. More to come soon. Your pilgrim, Donna. P.S. Some of you on the email list don't even know what on earth I'm doing back in Baghdad. In a nutshell, I'm part of an international group of former human shields who've returned to work with street kids and needy families. Monday, December 8. Friends. When I walked into the boys' room, Hussein was sitting on the floor playing with Lego, the sun shining through the window onto his face. Ahmed was beside him, drawing pictures on a big pad with coloured textures. The first time I saw 11-year-old Hussein, he was playing with pieces of razor wire, which surround the filthy squat where he used to live. The first time I saw Ahmed, who's nine, he was shuddering with cold, his big brown eyes wide with fear as he wandered the street late at night. These two boys are now living in a shelter set up by Our Home Iraq. The team from Our Home made up of seven international volunteers and several local Iraqis, have been working with the boys these last few weeks. The results have been fantastic. We started by visiting a large group that set up a squat in the basement of a burnt-out building. Most of them had started sniffing glue and solvents and becoming violent. We now have 20 boys in the house, aged from 9 to 19. They're cheeky, adorable little rascals who've stolen our hearts. P.S. Drug use amongst teenagers wasn't a problem in Iraq before the war. It's one of the many freedoms that has accompanied liberation. You know you're in Baghdad when, 
Queues at petrol stations can stretch up to two kilometres long, often meaning eight-hour waits. In an oil-rich country, I don't get it. Black market petrol is sold by the side of the road in plastic jerry cans, with a 7-up bottle cut in half and a rubber hose used to siphon fuel into cars. I really don't get it. You know you're in Baghdad when you plan your day's activities according to electricity cuts. You often wonder why they can't keep the power on long enough to write a report, but they can launch a high-tech missile attack on a mosque in Fallujah in 30 seconds. Administrator Paul Bremer couldn't hide his glee as he confirmed the rumour which had been sweeping Baghdad for some hours. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Sunday, December 14. Subject. Saddam captured. What has changed? It's about 7pm on Sunday night. The gunshots have been regular since news of the capture of Saddam Hussein started to spread around Baghdad at about 2 this afternoon. I stood around a television with a bunch of Iraqis and watched their jaws drop in unison as they saw their deposed former president pose sedately for a mugshot, his bushy beard newly shaved and his hair neatly trimmed for the picture. I laughed out loud with them and felt a sense of relief. Now many are celebrating the capture, hence the gunshots. My landlord told me they'll go all night. Do you want a gun, he asked. I can give you one to fire too. I politely declined and just asked for a beer and a falafel. One philosophical young man I spoke to shrugged his shoulders. What does it mean, he said. One man is captured. Did so many thousands of people have to die for this? What will change now? As I walked back to my home this afternoon, I wondered what would change now. I thought about the 15,000 people detained in the bleak Abergrove prison without charge or trial. I thought about the poor family we know who live in the concrete basement of a bombed-out building. They huddle in a corner and try to hide from the wind coming in the open doors. The people are happy that Saddam is captured, said the philosophical young man. But do you really think any of this was about Saddam? The young man's stinging question hung in the air like an unpleasant smell. Your pilgrim, Donna. Friday, December 19. Subject, Baby Nora. Baby Nora loves to dance. Well, it's more of a jig, as she bobs her stumpy body up and down to the sound of Middle Eastern music playing in the background. She laughs a lot, and when she smiles, you can see all of her seven teeth. Of all the people in Baghdad who had a right not to smile during the war, it was Nora. Nora has no arms and legs. She's just a torso and a head, but with a bright little face. She was found abandoned in a toilet of a Baghdad hospital last year. She didn't even have a name. But her smile is as wide as ever. It lights up the whole room, which is apt, because the name given to her, Nora, means light. Love your pilgrim, Donna. Thursday, January 1, 2004. Subject, bomb in my backyard. Dear friends, About 8 o'clock this morning, I was trying to decide what to do. Should I have a shower now or go down to the street and fetch some milk first? I quickly jumped in the shower. That decision may have saved my life. A few minutes later, as I stood with wet hair in the kitchen of our apartment, the force of a bomb blast knocked me off my feet. The sound of the bomb and then of a thousand plates of glass shattering hit my ears like a cricket bat across the head. I screamed as I hit the floor. 
Down on the street near our apartment, a roadside bomb had detonated as a US military convoy passed. It blew the head off an Iraqi man and maimed the bodies of two others. We quickly ran down to the street as a large crowd of locals gathered. I saw the body of the man killed as it lay on the ground. It was still, except for the fingers which twitched every now and then. A sheet was quickly thrown over him, but a thick trail of dark red blood flowed from under the sheet. It slithered like a fat snake through the mud and settled in a puddle of rainwater. I also heard the groans of the man whose right arm was blown off, and I saw the flesh of his left arm as it hung off his body. Mayhem settled in. People were yelling and screaming, questions, confusion. Journalists and cameras arrived. The American soldiers, scared and nervous, barked out orders that didn't seem to make any sense. Please, could you please go on the sidewalk? Please, could you please go on the sidewalk? I stood there with my hands shaking so much I couldn't hold my camera still. I started to cry. I put my head down so nobody would see me. No one else was crying, foreigners anyway. They were busy taking pictures, hearing the story, talking. I kept crying. I couldn't talk. I watched the children as they watched the chaos unfold. The soldiers got angrier. They aimed their guns at the crowd, then the tops of buildings, then back at the crowd. I wondered if this would make it onto the news at home, but with no American soldiers killed, I figured it was unlikely to raid a mention. There's no story here, one soldier yelled at me when I approached to ask him what happened. The people disagreed. The man killed was a well-known local who was on his way to the bank. He stopped at a cigarette stall and was hit by flying shrapnel as he bought a packet of smokes. He had a wife and family. The people also disagreed on who was to blame. They're terrorists, those who planted this bomb, one told a journalist. The Americans are the terrorists, a man next to him said. They've brought with them nothing but death. They're responsible for this. Most of the crowd agreed, and a group started chanting anti-American slogans up and down the street. One soldier said, We don't want to be here. I have a wife and daughter at home. Do you think I want to be here? The crowd gently lifted the body into a wooden coffin and into a nearby mosque. Today, dozens of shops with smashed windows and extensive damage were forced to close. But remarkably, as the cameras started to leave, the fruit vendors unpacked their bananas and the furniture shop swept up its glass and then put its lamps and lounges out onto the footpath as usual. Can you come back here? No new anything, no new hospital, no new school, no new street, no new home, no anything. You know you're in Baghdad when? Children's amusement parks are now military bases. University professors, lawyers and engineers are taxi drivers. It's the men who flock to the salons to be preened and get their eyebrows plucked. The answer to the most commonly asked question from you guys the last two weeks is yes. Christmas does happen in Iraq. In fact, as a predominantly Muslim country, Iraq has given me one of the most enjoyable Christmases ever. Iraq has a large Christian population and its followers live side by side with their Muslim brothers and sisters in respect and harmony. The common heritage of the two great faith traditions is constantly acknowledged. Church spires decorate the Baghdad skyline with the minarets of mosques nearby. 
I was invited by many Iraqis to join them for Christmas lunch. They were all Muslim families. Muslims here also mark the birth of Christ because he's one of their revered prophets. Sunday, February 8th. Subject, trauma. Dear friends, little Muhammad loves to draw. His colourful pictures include typical Iraqi scenes, palm trees, a big sun, blue sky, and of course the tanks, choppers, bullets and blood which are part of everyday life here. He takes time to draw them in great detail, especially the blood spurting out from the bodies on the ground, the tanks and soldiers doing the killing. Haider, who's 14, gets angry quickly. He snaps and lashes out violently at other kids. He also practices self-mutilation. Once when he was angry, he smashed a window with his fist, grabbed a piece of jagged glass and slashed his arms in front of us. Haider is an exceptionally smart and talented boy. When I asked him if he wants to go back to school, he answered emphatically, no, because I'm angry, he said, shaking his fists in the air. When I was a human shield, I experienced the emotional heaviness of living in pre-war Iraq and then enduring 12 days of the bombing campaign of Baghdad. It was enough to send me bonkers. Wondering if tonight is the night you're going to die weighs so heavy in your gut it feels constantly sick. Watching others die around you leaves you broken and empty. Trying to comfort the mourner leaves you exhausted, powerless, and constantly asking, did I do enough? I had post-traumatic stress disorder. After returning home from the war last year, I became so angry I could barely hold a conversation. Whenever I heard an aeroplane overhead, I grimaced on the inside, covered my ears and curled up on the ground. I cried every day for six months. And that was me, a relatively strong, resourceful adult. Imagine how it affects the kids. Like the kid who found his mother's body lying cold in the rubble after a missile accidentally hit the wrong house. Like the girl who started vomiting as she hid under her bed every night when the building started to shake. It shook so hard that the window smashed all over her bedroom floor and the explosions so loud they ripped through her body and she thought her head might explode. A campaign that was not designed to hit targets, but to terrorise and create fear. It worked. Imagine how the kids in Al-Aramira felt when their school was surrounded by tanks, the guns pointed towards them and 15 students dragged away and put into jail, all because they were in the vicinity of an anti-US demonstration held the day before. Imagine experiencing any of that. Imagine experiencing it as a five-year-old boy or an eight-year-old girl. Imagine what that might do to you, to your mind, your heart, your body, your spirit. And let's spare a thought for the other part of the equation. A report has found that US soldiers in Iraq are suffering post-traumatic stress in record numbers. Suicides are unusually high. Families of the servicemen and women back at home also suffer extreme stress and secondary trauma. Your pilgrim, Donna. P.S. The boys are well, blossoming like flowers. You know you're in Baghdad when every household has a gun. Women carry guns on the street. Parents are so fearful of lack of security, many don't allow their children to go to school. Piles of rotting rubbish grow on street corners and encourage the spread of disease because there's no local council to come and pick it up. Everyone you meet is exhausted about having to cope daily with these conditions and wonder how on earth they will cope another day. 
حول بغداد انه 3000 طفل in Baghdad and in the outskirts of Baghdad not in the Baghdad only but Baghdad is a large city maybe 3000 kids these children that have no parents Saturday, February 28, 2004. Subject, my friend in a prison cell. I met Issam on my first day in Baghdad, and from the first day his bright, cheerful face made regular appearances at our place. An energetic 31-year-old Iraqi, he first came around to offer help. He's an independent journalist and cameraman who also works as a translator, he helped us translate at a few meetings relating to our work with children. The day they told me he'd been arrested by American soldiers, I couldn't believe it. Our Isam? Why on earth would they arrest him? The American soldiers arrived at Isam's home at 3am. They searched the house, including the beds of his children, which still contain the sleepy four- and two-year-old toddlers. The soldiers accused him of filming the Iraqi resistance in action, while planting bombs, detonating them, attacking targets. Softly spoken Issam immediately declared his innocence of any involvement in such things. They searched his house from top to bottom. They didn't find anything to back up the allegation. As Issam's wife wept and the neighbours looked on, he was handcuffed, blindfolded, thrown into the back of a truck and driven away. The blindfold never came off. Neither did the handcuffs except for lunch and dinner, when he and the other detainees were often given pork, which they couldn't eat. The soldiers interrogated Issam on several occasions. One time, at 3am, a soldier came to him in the darkness and pulled off his blanket. The soldier was wearing a hood over his head. All Issam could see were two eyes belonging to someone barking out questions in quick succession, trying to trick him. One day the soldiers took Issam and about 50 other detainees to the police academy, they were lined up, hands tied behind their backs and asked to put their faces against a wall, still blindfolded. Gunshots then started around their bodies and heads. Issam soon realised they were at a shooting range being used as target practice in a bid to instil terror into them. They were treated like criminals. No washing facilities, no shower, not even shaving, no legal representation... Issam was released after 14 days in detention. We're sorry we arrested you, Issam was told. We've found you innocent. There is no charge. Thursday, March 18, 2004, 8.58pm. Subject, Peace Prayers. Dear friends, on the wall of our apartment here in Baghdad, we have some pieces of paper that have typed on them peace prayers from the world's faith traditions and religions. They all beautifully echo and reflect each other. On Saturday, I'll stand with religious leaders from Iraq and spiritual teachers from around the world to pray for peace. Muslim, Christian, Jewish, African tribal, Native American, Sabian and so on, praying in their own language and tradition, but praying together. Ordinary Iraqis, young and old, will join us. Children from our centre will sing peace songs. There's more bombs and explosions here tonight. It feels like they are all around us. You know you're in Baghdad when. Wild excuses for being late for an appointment such as five American tanks cut off the bridge near my house 
are plausible and must be accepted. Successful businesses have closed or struggled to survive because the US has permanently blocked several major inner-city roads. Customers no longer have access to the shops, but there's no compensation for loss of livelihood. Cars drive on the wrong side of the road into oncoming traffic, across median strips, the wrong direction at roundabouts, basically anywhere, really. Why? Because they can. This is my freedom, the young boys cry from a battered old Pajero that should have gone to the wreckers 20 years ago. at least 93 American soldiers have died so far. 900 Iraqis are thought to have been killed in the same period this month. The toll could be set, though, to rise. Women and children are being drugged into that fight by the extremists in Fallujah. Monday, April 12, 2004. Subject, Dark Days, Fallujah. These are dark and evil days, Frodo would say to Sam in The Lord of the Rings' Return of the King, which I've just finished reading. It feels the same here in Iraq as it did in Middle-earth before the final battle between good and evil. I can feel the Americans hitting harder than ever. Collective punishment on an entire city for the death of four mercenaries hasn't been the wisest decision of this authority. Unbelievable bloodshed has resulted for US soldiers and for locals. We talked about what on earth we could do bunch of foreigners who'd come to Iraq to work on various projects, but now confined to our apartments because of the kidnap scare. Earlier in the night, we discussed the possibility of going into Fallujah to do whatever we could to help the desperate situation there, to act as human shields, bringing in aid, accompanying ambulances and helping civilians get out safely. With hundreds of civilians lying dead on the streets from sniper fire, the theory was that our white skins and Western passports would protect us and allow us to do practical work that desperately needed to be done. Work that the Iraqis are killed doing. We had a friend who offered to get us in via backroads, and he knew the local militia. This would be our protection. They say the ceasefire is on shaky ground. Some who have been in Fallujah these past days say it's non-existent, that the city is still pounded by missiles, mortars and snipers day and night. Fallujah remains one of those cities in... Um Iraq, they just don't get it. One man screamed out that Fallujah would become a cemetery for the Americans. Tuesday, April 20. Subject, Fallujah, the clinic. On arrival in Fallujah, we drove through the deserted streets straight to the small neighbourhood clinic that had been transformed into a makeshift hospital after the main one was bombed and closed by the US military. The staff adapted admirably to the influx of wounded that were continually delivered in the backs of cars, vans and pickups. Extra beds were wheeled in, and cans of soft drink were emptied from the Coke machine so it could be used to cool bags of blood. But the clinic had no disinfectant or anaesthetic. Fallujah's main hospital was under the control of the Americans and wasn't allowing Iraqi fighters to be treated there. Two football fields today were converted into graveyards. This afternoon on the footpath outside the clinic, I saw one of the saddest sights of war. It was a small boy, about 10 years old. He'd just got out of a van that was used to transport the wounded and dead. The disturbing thing wasn't that he was wounded. On the contrary, he was the one driving the van. He unloaded the bodies, reported the stories to the doctors and onlookers, and gave orders while casually holding a Kalashnikov in his hand as if it were a cricket bat. With a scarf wrapped around his neck, a strong face and confident attitude, 
I could see he was an experienced fighter. My heart sank at the thought of this little boy, now a little mujahideen, playing with bullets instead of marbles. The locals said he was a good shot. Monday, April 26. Subject. Fallujah. Captured. We agreed if there was nothing more we can do, we should hit the road back to Baghdad, aware it would be a difficult and dangerous drive out of the Fallujah city limits. It was unclear which group controlled what road, so our driver, Imad, had to choose the route wisely. It seems he didn't. We drove to the edge of town and headed towards a lonely, dusty road. It was suspiciously empty, not a car in sight. As we stopped to investigate the road, a group of heavily armed Iraqi fighters, commonly referred to here as Mujahideen, noticed us. A man whose face I couldn't see because of the scarf wrapped around his head aimed a rocket launcher at me. Well, it was aimed at everyone, but it felt like it was just me. They put us into another car and we drove through the deserted town. At this stage, I didn't feel that I had been captured. I figured they'd just check out our story and give us a cup of tea and we'd be on our way. I'm not the panicky type. Can't wait for that tea, I thought, ignoring the fact that the driver had a grenade resting between his legs. When we got to the house, I didn't know what to think. A heavy-duty-looking warrior poured out some long scarves and started rolling them up. Imad knelt down and took off his glasses. Oh, my God. The thought horrified me. We're going to be blindfolded. Images filled my mind of the three Japanese captives we saw on TV. One of them a friend of mine blindfolded, shaking, and then filmed, screaming, with knives held to their throats. I felt a sense of dread fill my body. I finally accepted that we were being held captive. I looked at the others. Their faces were white, and I heard them whisper what was like final words to each other. But the warrior man turned Emad around and used the scarf to tie his hands behind his back. No blindfolds. The other men had their hands tied too. Us girls were left alone. I breathed again. After a while, an older man came in, dressed in civilian clothes, a long brown, traditional dress. He seemed like an elder type, a leader in the community. He had a serious face, but it was also dignified. They would have suspected we were spies, and he needed to find out. He took me into another room and started to ask me questions. What are you doing here? Why are you in Iraq? When I told him I was Australian, he raised his eyebrows. Tell me about this man, your president, Howard, he asked. Why did he go to war with Iraq? I told him I didn't agree with John Howard, so I couldn't justify his decision. For the next few minutes, I put my views on the war with as much passion and clarity as I could muster sitting on the floor in that dark room in a Fallujah house. He looked intently at me. Do Australian people want to hurt Iraqi people? The question broke my heart, and I had to choke back tears as I thought about all my friends at home who opposed the war. I told him that Australians don't want to hurt Iraqi people and took to the streets in their hundreds of thousands last year in demonstrations. Then why did the government go to war if the people didn't agree? I was back to square one, shrugging my shoulders and feeling stupid that I came from a so-called democracy, while it was obviously not a good example of one. I was held in a room with a man holding a gun blocking the door. But in that moment, I realised that I was not the captive. He was, and his wife, and his children, and his neighbours. I hung my head in shame. 
As the hours passed, the windowless room became more hot and stuffy. Eventually there was a knock at the door. The man had a message. Tomorrow you'll be released and taken back to Baghdad. When he closed the door, the others cheered and we all hugged each other. Your pilgrim, Donna. P.S. Australians, as you know, Prime Minister John Howard made a quick visit to Baghdad on Sunday. No, he didn't drop in to say hello to me, nor meet any of my Iraqi friends, or visit a hospital, or the refugees from Fallujah now living in tents. Nevertheless, I really believe that we should pray that somehow John Howard is touched by the visit and that his heart is softened to the suffering created by war. Sunday, May 2nd, 2004. Subject, The Rainbow, Peacebird Art School. Music, clapping, singing, dancing, and a guest appearance by Mickey and Minnie Mouse. Hundreds of happy kids, and they're just as happy parents. It was the opening of Peacebird Art School in Aldura district of Baghdad, and the neighbourhood was buzzing with celebration. The large crowd squeezed onto the rooftop theatre to enjoy a colourful show from one of Iraq's famous singers to mark the opening of this new centre for children. The day had been much anticipated by the local community. Peacebird Art School is a project of our organisation, Our Home Iraq, and therefore made possible by the donations of individuals and groups in Australia and around the world. The philosophy of Peacebird Art School is to help Iraqi children heal from trauma and reach their full potential through creative play therapy. The school has a music room, an art room, ceramic studio, theatre, computer room and outdoor play area. Most of the children in Aldura could never have dreamed of having access to such equipment in the past. While choppers roared overhead and the smoke from distant bombing hung in the air, I felt like a large rainbow had descended on Aldura and settled there. The colours were bright and strong. Your pilgrim, Donna. P.S. Thanks to all who made this happen. You know you're in Baghdad when, in one day, you witness the best and worst of humanity. You see an American soldier aim a gun at a young boy. Then you see another soldier tenderly play with a group of small children. Your pilgrim, Donna. You Know You're in Baghdad When was produced by Claudia Toronto for a series called Street Stories from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Speaking of letters and emails and communications of all sorts, we'd like to hear from you. Carrier pigeons, stone tablets, smoke signal, cave paintings, or really any old shout-out will do. Our email address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Dear Mom and Dad, you're probably wondering how I'm doing right now since I haven't written to you in more than a couple months. I'm also writing this letter to ask about Mother. I hope she's okay, and I would love if you could send me a letter back. I cannot wait to come home and see the rest of the family. Don't worry about me, Pops. I will make you proud. Love, Douglas. I miss you so much. Just remember, no matter what, I love you. I'm sorry to have written such a depressing letter, and I hope I never have to do such a thing ever again. Give everyone my best. I miss and love you all. Love, Billy. People who write letters don't usually watch a lot of TV. They're kind of like opposing forces in the universe. But Lucy Baker vacated her spot on the couch long enough to write a letter to the cable channel that holds her captive. Here's an open letter to Lifetime Television for Women. 
Dear Lifetime Television, look at the two of us. Me, buried in the couch cushions, surrounded by cold mugs of tea and a half-eaten bag of Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate chips. You, blinking your one eye against the dying sunlight. You lured me in just like Lisa Renna seduced that guy in your original movie, Another Woman's Husband. Where's the time gone? It seems like mere moments ago that I was waking up full of good intentions. I was going to go to the gym. I was going to purchase and wrap several belated birthday gifts. I was going to do three loads of laundry. I only flipped on the TV to check the weather. I only sat down for a moment just to see if little Emily's estranged biological father was a match for the bone marrow transplant she so desperately needed. I swear I was only going to watch you for half an hour. But that half hour became an entire movie. And then another. And another. Until I was as addicted to you as Meredith Baxter was to the drugs she was stealing from the methadone clinic in darkness before dawn. Nothing mattered anymore. Not working out. Not clean socks and underwear. Not even my friends. I made excuses for why I couldn't leave you. I told myself that you were teaching me things. Things about morality. Virtue. And what to do if my neighbor ever installs a spy cam in my shower. But as I rooted for Tiffany Thiessen to ditch her abusive husband in The Stranger Beside Me, a knot formed in the back of my throat, I couldn't admit that I, too, was in an unhealthy relationship. With you, Lifetime. So it comes to this. Night has fallen, and still I sit here in my sweatpants, teeth unbrushed and hair uncombed. I am another one of your victims, Lifetime. You bitch. You've robbed me of so much. You're no better than the whore that took Tracy Gold's baby and stolen from the heart. Mark my words, Lifetime. I will fight back against your feminine wiles. I'll get my revenge. Like Patty Duke who sued her ex-husband and when the vows break. You're going down. Just as soon as the Jean Monnet story is over. Sincerely, Lucy Baker, Brooklyn, New York. Open letter to Lifetime Television for Women by Lucy Baker via McSweeney's and Weekend America. Tell Kate a lover and I miss her more than anything. Tell the little ones that I send my love. And told that I hope everyone at home is okay and I miss you all. Love your son, Nigel. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to ReSound. When radio producer Jonathan Minhevar moved to Chicago, his mother naturally worried. I don't think it was actually Chicago that worried her. It was just that, you know, she was a mom. So Jonathan set about trying to reassure her. Hello. Hi, it's Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? All right. So, what exactly did did you guys talk about when you talked to my dad about being worried about me? Um, he mentioned that he was worried that you were going there without a job already lined up. I told him I'm really nervous about it, you know. Um, I don't know the people that you're friends with. It's kind of like, yeah, I would like to know your friends, but how am I going to know them? They're in Chicago and I'm over here in California. And I worry about your happiness. 
Are you happy? So, Mom, I've been thinking about what we were talking about on the phone the other day, and um, I know you're worried about me, and I know it's hard that we don't have the money to come see each other right now, but, um, you know, if you really want to, sometimes you can travel just by walking down the street and talking to people. And um, I know you really like talking to people, so I thought that that's what we'd do, that I'd take you on a little vacation and introduce you to some of the people I've met around town. Um, I thought we'd go first to the laundromat around the corner that I go to. There's this woman in there I want you to meet that uh, helped me out when I was in there. I got my hands all wet in the washer and she gave me a towel. And, and then there was this dryer that was broken, or I thought it was broken, and she showed me how to fix it. My name is Carmen Reyes. And I came to Chicago when I was 13. I came to live with my mother from Puerto Rico. That was, you know, way, way, way back. The rent was so cheap. It was only $32 a month. At that time, the neighborhood was super good. You could even sleep with your windows open, leave your bicycle outside, leave your shoes outside. Whatever you leave outside, you find the next day. But not, not this time. You, you leave something outside, half hour you come back, it's not there any longer. <laughs> I went to art school for two years. I went to YNCA College. What, were you painting? or? Uh-huh. I was painting abstracts. And uh, I was learning how to take pictures. But the teacher, she quit, so everybody was stuck. Working here, do you get to meet a lot of people? A lot of people. Good people, bad people, gunbangers, no gunbangers, girls, boys, all kind of people come here. Spanish, white, Mexican. We have all kind of people here. You find all the nations mostly in here. You know, people, they have to do laundry anyways, no matter what. <laughs> Mom, remember when I used to insist on wearing cowboy boots when I went outside, even when I was wearing shorts? Well, there's this place right up the street that I think I would have liked a lot then, this Western store called Alcala's that my friend told me is a good place to buy jeans. Um, there's a big sign that says, Ropa para caballeros. What are you my name is Louis. How are you related to? Well, I'm one of the oldest brothers. Okay. We're run by seven brothers. We carry boots, we carry saddles, suits, um, kids' boots, women's boots, men's boots. We carry stuff for horses. We carry spurs, purses, blouses, jackets, everything. We got everything that you could think of in Western. The only thing we don't have is a real life horse. Oh, we had a real life horse once back. About three or four years ago, we made a commercial. We had a big horse come in the store here. We brought him in the store by the register. About 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, we're going to make a commercial. And people are walking in, all of a sudden they see a big live horse right by the door. People are freaking out like, what the, what the hell? A horse, you know, you, you don't see a horse in the store every day. 
This is your men's section here. We got boots up to $4,000. Really? Yeah. What, show me what boots cost $4,000. A, a customer picked up a pair the other day. Something like this. This is going for $4,000. This is all alligator. We have a hat that's made out of chinchilla. It's going for $5,000. So where's the family from originally? Uh, my parents are from Matsuko. My mother's from Zacatecas. And my dad's from a place called Durango. Okay. And we were all born and raised here. And we've been in business a little bit over 30 years. I guess well, one of the things I'm trying to do, too, is find out um, stories about people moving. My mom, she was worried about me moving here, but she's an immigrant herself. She was born in Mexico. Okay. But, and my father was born in El Salvador. El Salvador, okay. So, uh, you know. So, so your parents are Spanish in there? Yeah. You speak Spanish? I don't. Oh, you don't? <laughs> no, I can understand a lot of Spanish, but, uh, but when it comes to speaking it, I'm a little scared. <laughs> So what do you think? Do you think I'll, I'll learn Spanish now that I'm here in Chicago? Well, if you, if you understand it, if you want to at least understand, that's a plus right there. There's so many people here in Chicago that speak Spanish and you, you'll catch up. Entiendo mucho, pero tengo miedo. No, 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 don't be afraid. If you're afraid, you're never going to do it. Hi, Mom. This is Peter Fuente from... Uh, the Department of Streets and Sanitation, uh, Bureau of Electricity. We're working on a one-out on Hoy and Chicago. So um, we just ran into your son, Jonathan. Seems like he's got it together. Don't worry, he's doing fine. <laughs> Mom, we've sort of been at this for a while. What do you say we uh, stop somewhere and get something to eat? There's this Costa Rican place called Pirasu, which has a... Uh, burritos and these really delicious oatmeal shakes. Small town uh, named Turrialba in Costa Rica. What, is, what does the name mean? Irazu? Yeah. It's a volcano. We had a lot of volcanoes in Costa Rica, like maybe nine or ten volcanoes. I, my dream was this to have a little tent like this. Had you been cooking for a, a long time, your whole life? Oh, yeah, I do. Since I was little, because we are 15. Brothers and sisters. Fifteen. Yeah, and then when my brothers, smaller than me, was little, I take care of them because my mother got too many kids, you know. Then we cook, we clean the house, we do a lot of things at home. You get a lot of young people coming in here, don't you? Oh, a lot of people like you. Oh, my, my, this is my best friends for me and my best customer. They call me mama. They do? Yeah, they call me mama. I feel good when they say, Hi, Ma, how are you? Do you miss Costa Rica? I mean, you... Oh, always, because uh, I miss Costa Rica. It's not Costa Rica, it's my family. I'm very close to them. And 
I lived here for many years without family, except my kids and my husband. I'm, I'm here without family, and my mom is, is <laughs> my little brother's still at home, but. Uh, I understand very well because right now I'm only me and my husband because they already moved. And then I feel sad again because it's very lonely. It's not fun, it's just me. I am my mom's first son. Mm, it's a little hard for your mom. <laughs> <laughs> For some people, it's not a big deal because they've got some, the funds and the means to fly back and forth. But I don't, you know, and so I miss you, and I don't know when I'll see you again. I'm happy though, Mom. In fact, I was thinking, um, do you remember when you used to get up in, on Saturday mornings and vacuum the house and play that same Linda Ronstadt record? Okay, yeah, yes, I remember. But I don't remember exactly what it sounded like, but I know that there was like some horns and then she would start singing. Uh-huh. And, and it was it was really loud. Uh-huh. I was angry about it every time I heard it, but um, it always felt good and comfortable. Uh-huh. And um, I don't know, I, I feel that same sort of feeling here in Chicago. I think. Like you're at home. Yeah. Kind of. Letters from Chicago, produced by Jonathan Menhivar. Jonathan has now moved on to Philadelphia and is working for Fresh Air. We expect a letter any day. Dear loved ones, it's been so long since I've seen you all. I pass my love on to you all, and I hope all is well. I miss you all terribly. I wonder what the weather is like back where you guys are right now. I miss you, Dad, and the whole family. Give them my best wishes, and I will see you as soon as possible. Love you, Charlie. I love you both, and I assure you everything will be okay. Love, Pat. If you're a big reader, there's no end to frustration in big box chain bookstores that always plug the most popular books without giving a lot of attention to more original writers. But for Sarah Bauer, going to these stores brings frustration of a whole different kind. Here's another open letter to people and entities who are unlikely to respond. Part of a series produced by Weekend America and McSweeney's. Dear young women who work at chain bookstores, The first moment I saw you, I knew you were different. Here, in the midst of this multinational chain bookstore, was an independent soul. Look at her black plastic-framed glasses. Look at her fierce unwillingness to conform. My heart went out to you. I know it's hard for you. 
Most customers are middle-aged, middle managers buying a copy of Who Moved My Cheese. I know that daily you deal with women buying kitten calendars and parents buying American Girl books for their little sorority sisters in training. I know that sometimes you go home and cry, and I feel for you. You're lonely, young women who work at chain bookstores, and you want to find someone who understands you. You dream of a man who will hold you in the dark, listen to you talk about your deepest fears, and take you shopping at the goth store in the mall. You size up customers as potential allies, and you try so hard to make friends with those who are like you, who bear the cross of not fitting in. You try to smile, take deep breaths, and not appear desperate. It's hard. It's so hard. I want to take you into my arms and promise that it will get easier, but it won't. Young women who work at chain bookstores, here's what I am saying. Stop hitting on my boyfriend. For Christ's sake, I am standing right next to him. I am not his little sister. I am not his best platonic friend. We will talk about you in the parking lot, and we will laugh. Tonight, while he is holding me in the dark, I will consider how you and I are really rather similar. Then I will drop off to sleep and never think of you again. Sincerely, Sarah Bauer. An Open Letter to Young Women Who Work at Chain Bookstores by Sarah Bauer. If you want to hear all the open letters to people and entities who are unlikely to respond, we have a link on our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. It's so cool that I love you. It's so Our next letter isn't really a letter. It's a recording from an answering machine. But still, it has all the hallmarks of a letter, the tone and thought and reflection that can only happen in a one-way communication with no pauses for response, no immediate feedback, and no instant gratification. Producer Zach Rosen wanted to learn something about Antarctica, so via a blog, he hooked up with Matthew Strine, a scientist on the icy coast. But because of the 16-hour time difference, they could never connect voice to voice. So Zach told Matthew that he would just leave his answering machine on and that Matthew should call him in the middle of the night and tell him about Antarctica. This is what Zach found on his machine the next morning. On the ice, it's kind of odd to see seals and penguins real close to town. Uh, they are around. There's a lot of them. But you occasionally get a seal that pops out from the ice not too far from town here, and you can go out and look at them. Also, there's birds around. They call them skua birds, which are kind of like seagulls, but they have a lot meaner. They're like the seagulls you see at the seashore, but it's like they're on steroids. This is Matthew Strine. I'm calling to you from McMurdo Station in Antarctica. McMurdo Station is located on Ross Island, which is permanently connected to the rest of the continent by a, an ice shelf that never leaves. If I look out my window, right now there's ice covering the ocean, but come December, most of the ice will probably leave on the open ocean. Uh, we'll probably see some whales. McMurdo Station is nestled below Mount Erebus, which is the southernmost active volcano in the world. And usually on a clear day, you can see it smoking out of the top. We're in the austral summer, which means we're 24-hour daylight, so even at midnight, you need your sunglasses out. 
There's a couple bars in town here, lots of hiking. Uh, if I look out my window also, I can see Robert Scott Hut. The hut is pretty amazing in the fact that it totally remains as it was when it was left uh, the last time anyone used it was 1913, and everything in the inside is preserved because it's uh, constantly below freezing here. It's really an honor to be down here and get to see a place not too many people get to see. Antarctic Solitude, produced by Zach Rosen. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to Resound. Take care, Habibi. Take care. Take care. Very truly yours. Sincerely yours. regards. Be well. Ugly kisses. Godspeed. Adios. Peace. XO, XO. Sincerely yours. Rock on. Love yours always. respectfully. Love. Yours sincerely. Ciao. Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production assistant is Delaney Hall. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.